This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Hey, folks, you've landed in uh, TGFDCT. Amir, could you hear me a moment ago, even though I was on mute? Yes, we could. Yeah, so um, today is going to be a buggy experience on Clubhouse um, because they've done some interesting migrating. Things may look a little different. We are technically a, a, a club and not a house or a room and not a closet. I don't even know what these things are now, but it's already off to a wonky start. Apparently, the mute buttons don't work. So for all of our speakers, be cognizant of that. And... Um, Jane, Amir, Joe, nobody was uh, invited up here automatically as speakers. So we'll see what other tricks Clubhouse has in store for us today, guys. For those of you who are just joining us, welcome. You've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse. We do gather here every Friday. We do this live on Fridays, 12 to 1 Eastern on Clubhouse. We also are sharing this through your favorite podcast platform. So if you're hearing this on a podcast, welcome. Hit subscribe. If you want to jump in and join us live and join in the conversations, you can find us on Clubhouse on Fridays, 12 to 1 Eastern. If you're curious what we're covering that week, give a follow to myself, Jane, Amir on LinkedIn, Twitter, and we'll keep you updated over there. These topics we cover here every Friday come from you, the folks in our community. And so if you have a topic you would love to see us cover in the weeks ahead, just drop a line, Jane, myself, Amir, or you can always uh, contact through DTRA, secretariat at DTRA.org, and let them know. We'll get you added to the schedule, and we'll look forward to hearing what topic is on your mind. That's how we have topics like today's conversation about consumer experiences and What's your favorite consumer experience that you would wish for in trials? And we'll talk about who we've got as our special guest in just a moment. But before we do, Jane, how are things in your neck of the woods today? All good here. And in case you missed it, I did. You can now drop sounds in as well as emojis. So that might make today's call even more fun. There it is. An idea brought to you by Jane. <laughs> Thanks, Clubhouse. We'll see what madness uh, that brings to it. Um, <laughs> emojis and sounds. Stay tuned. Amir, are you finding any new discoveries here? How are things in your world today? 
Well, I'm hoping to then add smells or something, that's for sure. Um, it just shows you that um, you know anything can get better or worse. Uh, things are great, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. Fabulous. Fabulous. Well, uh, today is Friday. We're in the midst of April. There's some fun events coming up on the calendar. I'm going to be in Boston at an Informa DCT conference next week for a couple of days or maybe at least for a morning. So hopefully I'll see some folks from the community over there. We'll have some other events that DTRA is supporting and participating in coming up throughout the spring. And that all amps up to the the big events like bio and DIA coming up in June. But of course, we also like to keep our schedule of, of uh, content coming up here on Clubhouse. One of the next topics you'll see uh, here for, for those of you that will be either following either Clubhouse or through the podcast will be our next initiative team update. We'll be talking about evidence of impact. And this is such an important topic for all of us as we all need to have ways to quantify and show the measurable impact of decentralization in research. Is it making a positive impact? Is it adding burden? Uh, how can we best gather that type of data and evidence and communicate that out? Jane, I think that topic's coming up next week, right? That's exactly right. This time next week. I am going to be an active listener for that topic because I'm going to be on the road with my daughter looking at colleges. So I'm going to look forward to hearing uh, Jane Amir and our initiative team sharing that update. And I get to be a passive listener from the car. But today we have our friend Joe Dustin, eClinical on Twitter, here with us from Medible. Legacy Bristol-Myers, Legacy Medidata. Joe's been around the block a minute or two. But Joe always has some interesting and provocative thoughts for us on different topics. And also Pringles, according to his profile photo here on today. I don't, I don't remember how that happened, but apparently bagels are... Uh, it's a good morning for bagels. So, yeah. It's a good morning. It's always a good morning for a bagel. Joe, introduce yourself for anyone that hasn't had the pleasure. Hey, everybody. Uh, happy Friday. Thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Joe Dustin. I'm currently the VP of ECOA at Medible. Um, but as Craig said, been kind of around the block for about 20 years in our industry. It makes me feel old, but um, it's been fun. And I think something that I've always seen and wanted to understand how we get to in this industry is um, when the things at work I'm sorry, when the things at home that you use every day are better than the things that you use at work, and I'm talking about applications, experiences, widgets, gadgets, whatever, why can't they be as good as they are at home? Why, why is there a difference? Why does the stuff at work have to be so horrible to use? And, and I, I remember having this conversation 10 years ago, and we almost kind of got there, and then it feels like things have reset again. I don't know why, and I think there's just a number of digital transformations over the years that I think we probably could, could point to. But I am on, after the mission of, of trying to consumerize healthcare and research. And I think part of that actually stems from the experience that people have in all aspects of this, whether you're a participant, whether you're a site, whether you're a physician, you're a sponsor, you're a CRO, you're somebody in that whole experience. And I put a post on LinkedIn about two weeks ago got a ton of responses and lots of great ideas. And I figured, uh, Craig, I think you agree. This would be a great conversation. Just kind of have an open forum for people. 
Um, and, and I love Clubhouse because it could be more of like the free-for-all as opposed to the organized panel. So I'm hoping, hoping we get a little free-for-all today just to get people to jump up and see what they think. Well, Joe, I'm going to be very curious to hear what kinds of things people were sharing with you there. On We're getting a little background noise there, Joe. Uh, I'm going to be very curious to see what kind of um, feedback you were getting from that LinkedIn post. Uh, I'd be very curious to hear what... Uh, Mir and Jane are thinking as far as consumer experiences that they love, and I'll be very curious to hear from folks in our live audience today about their favorite experiences and how we could potentially bring those in to clinical trials and clinical research. But Joe, one initial question just to get us going. Clinical trials and clinical research are serious business. We have people with serious medical conditions who are volunteering to take an investigational medicine in a, in a scientific and clinically controlled setting. They're sharing data and we need that data to understand the efficacy and safety of new medicines. Is this field too serious? Is there too much gravitas for us to consider what is our favorite feature of TikTok to bring into clinical trials and clinical research? Well, it's kind of funny. I remember talking to a site maybe eight years ago that said they started recruiting patients over Snapchat. And uh, this was the first person I heard doing that. And I thought that was interesting. I said, that that's going to change everything. And, um, I'm not going to say that Snapchat is the place to recruit a lot of patients and is definitely not a, uh, a top lead generation place, but it, it's something and it's an area that we can check out. But then that made me say, nothing's impossible here. I mean, if you think it's crazy, it could actually be crazy enough to work. Um, I think about one, one topic that, is very much connected to your statement about are we too serious for this to be consumerized? Um, in my years in pharma, in our industry, and um, just in healthcare and life sciences, I've heard a number of people say, "Well, you know, healthcare, you're you're only about one step above the government when it comes to innovation. It's slow, it's error prone, it's manual. It's just, it's just it's, what's the point, right?" And I, I would argue to say. That's why there's so much opportunity because there's so many problems, right? At the same time, I would say that there are, I think we've been trained by some manner of the fact that we've been working on this for so long and people have been so niche and embedded in their job for so long that if it's simple and it looks consumerized, it must not be able to handle my complex study or my complex requirements. There's no way it could be that easy. And I would challenge that to say, why not? Because why does, why do things that need to be hard? That's where innovation comes from, right? Like if you take things that are hard and make them easier, look at what decentralized trials has done. It's taking things that were once always done in a clinic by highly skilled professionals with highly expensive and specialized equipment in a controlled setting. And now you're doing things at home where you couldn't ever do that before. We're defining the experience right now. So don't tell me that it's too easy for me. It can't possibly help because I believe um, that, that that's just misstep thinking. Joe, just for fun, I dropped the uh, link in the top of the room. For those that are here on Clubhouse and Live, you can find the link there. We'll try to add that to the show notes uh, if you're on a podcast, to see that public post from Joe and some of the fun conversations that that were taking place beneath there. Amir, Jane, do you have uh, other thoughts on this before we maybe start to jump in with Joe on what types of 
of ideas were starting to get shared. Jane, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? No, I was going to defer to you. Go for it. Sure. Um, the only thing I'll say that for now, uh, there's so many directions we can go. I want to maybe the most obvious thing would be pure can tell us how, you know, their experience with Amazon Prime is better, right? So that we could definitely do all that. But uh, I want to expand it through kind of for whom. And what I mean by that is the most obvious thing is the fact that the experience that patients have in clinical trials is nothing as good as the best of consumer, right? Um, however, maybe we can expand it beyond that to the experience, not just for the patient, which we talk about a lot here, right? But actually for people in drug development. And what do I mean by that? Um, you know, for years, um, you know, we've been thinking about hopefully and sort of talking about what I would call transparency. What I mean by that is not actually what maybe jumps to your mind first, which is data transparency for patients and things like that, but actually transparency of clinical trials to people actually doing the work. And what do I mean by that? You know, really in traditional clinical trials as a drug developer, you kind of did the experiment and started it and hoped for the best and you waited till it all finished and then you looked at the data which was kind of always seems very archaic and there was really not much sort of you know instantaneous kind of data available to you to try and maybe ch change things so i'm gonna give you a very recent example that craig i may have discussed with you i can't remember since i just came back from japan so um, it's just the analogy of consumer versus kind of um, uh, what we have in clinical trials. Um, so I, I was in Kyoto and I had a kind of quite a famous purse guide going to take me around one day and he turned up with about five other people which was interesting and it turned out he was like a guru guide and he was teaching a bunch of people how to be guides and he wondered whether they can all come with us and which was fine with me you know we, we had quite the retinue and so because of that, you know, I was going to catch an Uber, but you know, there's a lot of us. So um, uh, I said, well, we'll just catch, uh, we'll, we'll pay for a bunch of Ubers. But they said, no, 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 we're going to catch the bus, which worried me a bit because in Kyoto, especially during trade blossom season, I've, I knew that it's very busy and the buses get full and, you know, it's not, it might not be the best thing. So we walked to the bus station. I was, you know, thinking about that. And I said to this guru guide, I said, uh, how long do you think the bus is going to be? And he looked at me, he goes, well, I don't really know, you know, <laughs> whatever, it's, whatever it's going to be, it's hard to predict. So I pulled out my phone and this was not AI or chat GPT. I pulled up my phone and just looked at Google Maps and I knew where we're going. So I put that as destination, asked for public transport and it told me which bus we should take. It told me it's coming in four minutes. And it told me that it wasn't that busy on the bus, thankfully. So I turned around to the, these, all these Japanese people and I said, well, uh, I see we have to catch bus, you know, number, whatever. Uh, I said, how does it usually take to come? You know, what's the usual? And they go, we don't know. It really varies, you know, whenever it comes. And I said, well, it's going to come in four minutes and it's not going to be very busy. And they looked at me. They didn't quite understand how I, I just think that I was making it up or I think they just didn't understand why I was saying that. And sure enough, in four minutes, the bus turned up and it wasn't very busy. 
And they all looked at me kind of puzzled and I showed them my Google Maps. Now they all had smartphones. They all, you know, could have done it. They just had no idea you could do that. And what I mean by that is I had data transparency and it was almost like magic, but they were all stuck in the old world where they had no idea when the bus was going to come. And I feel like, you know, in clinical trials, you know, we still in many ways, despite all the dashboards that companies have built, we're still, I'm just giving one example of where I think the experience could be better for drug developers, let alone the bigger subject that people maybe think about more, which is how can we make it a better experience for the consumer, who certainly as a patient coming into our clinical trials is not having a great experience. So that's why I would start with as a, a, a sort of one analogy just from last week. Well, I certainly love the idea of being expansive about uh, for whom do we want to improve the experience. But I really love the story that, you know, you didn't invent Google Maps. You weren't some elitist that had access to Google Maps that nobody else could access. And you're probably right that in many organizations, there are tools that can make things better. Just do people know where they are, how to use them, how to find them, um, because they're getting hit with so many different tools. And is that part of the magic today? You know, I, I put a Nest thermostat in my house and my wife is furious at me now because she feels like she can't change the temperature. And, you know, to me, it's like, well, we're just going to do the following steps. But if people don't know how to use or to find or to access those tools, they're not magically delightful. They're burdensome <laughs> To burden some nightmares in the process. So, how much of how much of what's holding us back from enjoying some of these new potential consumer experiences is around training and process and availability of the tools? Although, I guess on the other end of that, Amir, nobody trained or taught you how to use Google Maps, right? Uh, exactly. I mean, the same day. I mean, that we were taking photos, you know, from the cherry blossoms and birds and things. And uh, one of the guys said to me, I wonder what that plant is. It'd be really good to know. And I said, well, you've just taken a picture, press that eye, uh, icon, and it'll tell you. And it was like magic again. They're like, wow, we could. So I will tell you, by the end of that, I told them a few other things. And I jokingly said, don't worry, I won't charge you too much for this. You know, so, so I mean, honestly, on a daily basis, you find examples like that. Jane, uh, what are your thoughts on this week's topic? Well, I am really curious to hear what people are interested in having in their in their world for clinical trials. I was thinking a little bit about um, clinical trials, and Craig, you know, sometimes I say clinical trials are hard, even the easy ones. But it's not always hard because of the technology, frankly, Sometimes it's just hard because our processes haven't caught up. And today in particular, I'm thinking about access to medical records and being able to confirm patient eligibility in decentralized settings. And it's the human friction there that I think is problematic, not the fact like the data exists, the patient has said you can have it, but there's still a friction element here in getting access to seeing does the patient actually meet the conditions for the trial. So those are the sorts of things I'm interested in seeing evolve, to your point, Joe, so that the things that we have in our work are as good as they are in life. 
Dusty, let's break this down a bit. So I can imagine that you got posts that came back in a bunch of flavors, whether it's around ways for people to find or learn about trials or ways that we can better schedule, ways that we can better engage and improve um, uh, experience around visits, or to Amir's point, ways that that experience could be positive for study teams and for uh, uh, whether the site, the sponsor, the CRO. Do you have a couple of favorite examples, Joe, from uh, from the post that you had made online? Yeah, there's a few, and and, and uh, there's definitely some standouts that that uh, go. So before before I get into that, I would say that like when I think about this from from where I sit, um, and, and I'm taking like my work world for just a moment, um, because I think my out of work world probably has more of an influence on this post. Um, but if I think about like how ECOA has evolved in clinical, you know evidence generation and data capture from patients directly. When I talk to sites and, and <laughs> this, this is one of those things where like, you know, this is the view of Joe, not his employer, right? There are many sites out there that are still like, you know, paper's easier, dude, stop sending these things to me. I just, why? We all know paper's a bad idea for many reasons, but the sites are frustrated. So the consumer, the experience for them in these types of situations are not great. Companies out there have not done a good job at keeping up to speed with the latest tech and one would scapegoat the regulators and other things that of why that doesn't go as fast. So I see that consumer experience with the patient being centered around, you know, what they have in their hand to help them through the process. And then within that, be, if you have a single patient platform, uh, as a single pane of glass, then all these other experiences roll into that one place, even if it's from many companies. Craig, you, I think you talked about this in like 2012, this like M clinical vision of like one app to rule the ball, right? I think we're still a little ways away from that, but that's, that's one example from the patient's perspective. And for me, that's where I'm, my head is right now and trying to figure out where that goes, but that's, that's just me and what I'm doing every day at work. Besides that, um, there are many ways you can, many places you can see where this consumer experience impacts. And in the LinkedIn post, if you guys click on the link above, there's a whole bunch of examples. Some of my favorite standouts mostly are related to its operations. It's, it's fixing the experience for just software that you have to use to do your job to make it easier. I, I think I love, I love Doug Bain's post, which is one I think I feel like I've been talking about and beating a dead horse for 20 years, which is it's basically saying single sign-on. One one place to go, one user experience, one place to go for entry, one place to go for all your stuff. And um, there have been many places, many, many attempts at this. I think they've all failed um, because nobody wants to play in a sandbox together, right? Well, um, you know, if I think about my consumer experience with single sign-on, I think there are some consumers that probably find some single sign-on a little creepy in terms of privacy. So I, I, I wonder if there are ways that we can learn from that and, and aspire to a single sign-on for clinical research that doesn't feel like we're linking things people don't want linked. And that's the issue, right? Like we, in, in the consumer world, we give up a little bit of privacy for convenience. That's just why things are free, right? Facebook does it, Apple, well, Apple maybe doesn't do it. But Facebook does it, Google does it, they all do it. But in clinical research, that's a problem. I remember talking to Alicia Staley, who's one of our, famed patient advocates in our industry, right? And, and and she says, like, if you if you do a login with Facebook on your patient portal, they're profiling you at Facebook. Don't do that. <laughs> You're giving away your data. 
and and like, but it's so convenient. Why can't we have a login with Facebook button for every eClinical app out there? And the answer is for that reason, right? And um, you know, is there's no real central industry identity management that everyone can get behind. That's like, you know, log in with Transcelerate. It doesn't exist. Maybe LinkedIn is the better one. But um, yeah, that kind of stuff, I think. I would love to have that just to sign up for an account with some sort of central identity provider that I trust. I think the problem is trust in our industry specifically. Um, yeah. Amir, Jane, is there a consumer experience that you adore that you wish were brought into clinical trials and clinical research? Jay, why don't you go first this time? Okay, well, let's say it's clinical trials adjacent, but um, relevant to the chat posting around allowing patients to see their data, there must be a way for us to better use apps like the one that accompanies the Aura Ring to help people understand if they're on track with their health goals and also with their participation in a trial specifically. The, the subtlety here is some data might have to not be visible to maintain scientific integrity of the trial. But I think that if patients could get quicker and more transparent access to how things are going for them, it would help them understand how the you know, are they actually getting what they had hoped out of the trial? And I'm not even saying efficacy benefits, but just the experience benefits. So that's my offering. Great analogy with the experience with the uh, the Aura Ring. I mean, I said, you, oh, go ahead, Joe. I've said for years the Aura Ring uh, is like the should be the benchmark, or not the benchmark, the sort of like, this is where we should be heading in, in apps for clinical trials. I remember presenting this in, I was an early adopter of the Aura Ring when it first came out. And um, I would show it, like just, I used to do presentations when I speak at conferences and say, here's the latest gadget I'm playing with. And I would show it and I would say 75% of the people in the room never heard of it before, right? And I would say, this app is so good because it takes all this data that is not understandable by us mortals and puts it into a, a way that I can understand it. It tells me, it tells me, hey, you should take a rest today because your body's not an optimal recovery rate. And hey, don't skip leg day today because you're, you're gonna get more benefit out of that. Um, my problem is that it tells me to rest like every day because I don't sleep, <laughs> I don't sleep nearly enough as much as I should be. Um, but like, it just takes that information and tells you what to do with it. Now put that in a clinical trial sense. Tell me what to do next, right? Tell me what I should be doing based on all the data that's happening, based on my place in the trial, based on the schedule, based on what tasks I have to do next. Um, I love Joe Kim's uh, idea when he at Proofpilot over there, but the, basically the Google Maps for clinical trials, similar to what Amir's saying. What do I have to do next from a site perspective, which is I think where he's mostly looking at. Um, that's a huge problem. I think that there's so many different things to do that you don't do them in the right order you create protocol deviations, you uh, potentially miss data, and, and there's just, like, the training at the investigator meeting is not enough, right? These kind of companions are super interesting. So, Craig, I mean, you asked me as well. So I, I would say uh, Jane's example is interesting because it's kind of like data transparency for patients, the way I was talking about, you know, data transparency for drug developers. Um, 
there's so many examples one could give, but the one thing I will point out is some of people's favorite uh, experiences may have actually degraded during COVID. Now, the example I'll give you is, it's still astonishing to me that Starbucks just had such a challenge uh, and it still continues in the US, frankly, compared to other countries I've been to recently, uh, where, you know, what, um, I remember, let's take that Starbucks experience. I remember being at JP Morgan and, um, you know, the app had come out relatively recently at that point. And, you know, every morning I would order the app, uh, the coffee in my Uber going, you know, in, and I'd get to the Starbucks and there'd be a huge line of bankers waiting to get a coffee and I walked in and you know take the mobile order and thinking well you're not that smart and I uh, so it's kind of funny how that was really a good experience right and continues in general if you use Starbucks to be a good experience um, however what you found was you know you try and order and the Starbucks was closed I mean post-COVID it was actually a horrible day I don't know how many of you experienced this but you know the Starbucks were closed half the time couldn't get the staff you know so even the largest yeah. corporations who had solved amazing amount of sort of operational challenges globally uh, had a real challenge. So I just want to remind people things can go wrong, and you know it, the, even the best of examples doesn't necessarily go well sometimes. Just like the clubhouse experience to you, uh, this morning for you, Craig. Um, so that's one thing. But there's there are lots of consumer experiences that will be ideal. Some may be unrealistic. Some maybe that you know contrasts are too complex for some things. But I think, as Joe mentioned, there are so many things that we could learn from that we could definitely make our experience better, both for the uh, the volunteers for clinical trials and also, you know, people, whether it's at the site level or whether it's at the industry level, make it just, I would say, less frictionless. Like, there's a lot of friction. So uh, I noticed that also, quite honestly, I'll go back to last week. Japan has a lot of friction. You would not believe... Uh, how long it takes to solve the most simple thing that you would think should take five seconds, but can take two hours in Japan, right? You just feel that everything has friction. You, 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 when you're used to using open table, all these other things you like here, and that just does not work in Japan, right? You just cannot do that. And most of the time, unless you book three months ahead, you can't get into a good restaurant. That's not a great consumer experience right um so again the, even in the, in the consumer world it's kind of interesting how different countries have different experiences for people it's kind of a bit like that in our world and i think not only is our life science or drug development world complex but i think uh, some of the conversation already hints at the complexity of having a galaxy of um, vendors and you know other providers who you know aren't all on the same system, and that's just the nature of capitalism. And we've chosen to you know do that, and uh, it does add complexity. The last thing I'll mention is the only th um, I think people all say they like change, but I think it's the change part that people don't really like. <laughs> so I'll give you an example of. Um, where I think sometimes you even f provide a solution and people just use, don't use it. We, quite a few years ago, not in a commercial setting, in a non-profit setting, um, um, enabled what P sites have been asking for years, which was, oh dear God, I am so sick of training for these rating scales. Um, can, can we please 
uh, stop doing this. Like I've done the training, you know, every two weeks with different companies. I've I've actually had to do the training with the same training company for multiple companies in the same month. Can we solve that? And believe it or not, we did actually solve it in a free system for them where they could come in and train once and the vendors actually agreed, managed to persuade them all to accept the training from other vendors. Um, so you would think this was fantastic and that people would use it. Well, this, the, the very sites who complained about this forever uh, just didn't use them that much. It reminds me a little bit of the Transfirate sort of site portal. It's kind of a slightly different story, but for sure. But again, same thing. They spent all that money getting built. And, you know, the uptake is frankly, from what I see, has been horrible. So even when you build solutions, then maybe there's reasons why people chose not to use that one or, you know, but it, it, sometimes even the very things people ask for, you give it to them, they don't bother using it. So I'll end with that one. Well, we are at the halfway point here. So for those of you, whether on Clubhouse or our via podcast, uh, just a quick reminder, you have landed in the Decentralized Trials Club. We gather here weekly and cover a range of topics. And if you're listening via podcast, drop in on a live gathering Fridays, 12 to 1 on Clubhouse. And if that doesn't work for you, find the replays uh, through that favorite podcast platform. Hit subscribe. So today we're talking with Joe Dustin from Medible about, and these are just Joe's thoughts here today, about your favorite consumer experience. What would you love to see brought into clinical research? Amir was mentioning about trying to get a dinner reservation in Japan. I love Open Table and Resi and the ability to go online and schedule tables myself. I hate trying to chase down reservations and having to keep calling and recalling. And I love that some of my doctor's offices have some online scheduling tools, but most of them don't. And I really haven't seen many like that to support our research participants, um, you know, at least ones that are truly connected and, and are in some sort of strange asynchronous process of site staff having to type in manually their availability. Um, so that to me is one experience that I love as a consumer that I, I feel like would make some people's lives easier in the clinical research universe. What are those consumer experiences on your mind? If you've played along with us before, you know, like Archana does, that now's a great time to raise your hand, jump up on stage, share your thoughts and experiences, perspectives on today's topic. So if you're new with Clubhouse, down at the bottom of your screen, a little hand raising icon, and we'll have you join us here on stage, just like our friend Archana saw. Archana, come off mute, introduce yourself for folks who have not had the pleasure. Hi, good morning from sunny California, Bay Area. Uh, delighted to jump on stage here. Uh, what a wonderful topic today. Thanks for bringing uh, me on stage. Uh, my name is Arjuna Sa, and I have spent the past 30 years in the industry in clinical development and digital health, past um, uh, Big Pharma as well as Medible, um, where I worked on oncology solutions. So really excited about the topic today. And I wanted to um, sort of share so my experience, there was, you know, one of the trials I've personally participated in is the Project Baseline trial 
um, run by Verily, where they track your global health um, over a period of five years. And it involves an annual in-person visit to the clinic and once a quarter um, measurement of other health standards. And my consumer experience there, as you know, if I look at that experience and I just completed uh, my five years last year, since I was one of the very first people enrolled in that trial, my experience, overall experience as a consumer of the, of the device that they gave me, it was a wristwatch that I had to wear, um, which measured different aspects, as well as when I went into the clinic on manual visit, was, I would say, excellent. I, I felt like they really, you know, building that trust with me, the way they approached it in the, in the initial stages, um, and even when they introduced in the second year a genomic analysis, the way it was approached, the process which was followed to integrate it into the clinical data that they were collecting uh, was seamless and easy for a consumer. So even if I take out my scientific hat and just think about um, you know, a normal consumer, like I met fellow fellow patients who were participating in that trial, who were working as baristas or, um, you know, other non-scientific uh, occupations. Uh, and I used to talk to them in, in the waiting room while we would wait. They were all delighted with the experience. I think that's what really brought them to the trial. And the fact that they, it was so easily laid out all the data was integrated in one single platform. So every quarter when we went in and gave our, uh, completed our questionnaires, it was beautifully designed. It was easy to follow. So my insight that I would share here uh, with the folks on the call is, I think it has to start with a patient experience, which builds the trust that Joe mentioned about that it actually leads to the trust building. Like even today, just today, I got another request from Project Baseline and they asked me a whole bunch of questions about the trust level, how I feel, whether they are, you know, I can trust them with my data, et cetera, to participate in future studies. Um, so building that trust with comes with experience while you are in the trial. And in an ongoing trial, what data needs to be shared versus versus kept blinded? I think I want to touch on that. I saw some some discussion on that in the chat there. Um, while it is, I fully agree, it is very difficult to plan and execute, especially in a blinded versus unblinded study. But I I feel that the study management team, as well as the vendors that they work with, have to put in that extra effort upfront to design that if they are interested in that long-term trust building and that long-term, um, you know, belief in the data from the patients where they'll come back as a consumer, come back for to, to say, uh, do the next trial or buy the next um, device that they may be putting out. Um, so I, I wanted to leave those two insights um, with the, and I'm happy for, to hear any questions and, and participate further. Archna, I was just going to weigh in on Project Baseline. I was your fellow participant, probably in about the same time frame to enroll. But one of the things that I also found really wonderful about the experience was that during the trial, we validated the use of that wristwatch as part of the study. You could opt into that sub-study. And we were able to replace a different external device 
by validating that the data on the wristwatch was as good as that external device. So why am I sharing that? Because it helped patients understand what it takes to get data that is clinical trial quality and validate those endpoints. So I thought they did a great job educating participants to join and helping them understand why they were being asked. Yeah, and they would send out regular updates, Jane, if you recall. I remember receiving them. Um, they would hold webinars for us to update us how the study is going, the annual publications they would share with us. So that built my trust level even more in trusting them with my data. You know, I could never get into baseline. Um, they, for every time I tried, it said, you do not live close enough to a site. And I said, what the heck? I thought it was supposed to be a... I, I thought it was supposed to be some sort of a decentralized trial, at least in the early day. And I don't think it's ever changed. And I think it's the main studies over, I think at this point, right. But it's, it's, they're following long-term, but, um, so I signed up for the all of us study instead. Um, some of you probably know that one in the U S um, it's NIH funded. And I know it was built a lot at Scripps translational research. So Eric Topol's group out in California, um, and a lot of folks in our industry, I think, were in residency over there that were helping to build this. Now, completely custom platform, definitely not scalable to multiple trials, but maybe one day the things that they've done in there from a patient portal perspective, from a connected to EHRs, your wearables, your different kind of survey, it's a very much a real world data study. Uh, you know, they're following Americans for 10 years, um, but the experience is awesome. Like, it wants me to go to Columbia and get like, blood taken and lab tests and the physical and all this stuff. And I did a spit test like a 23 and me, except it was for their study and things just were sent to my home. And, the, you know, I know we talk about these consumer experiences and then there are many people probably whenever we would talk about this at a, over a drink or in this room right now, that would never happen in our world. There was no way that could happen. No, th th stop saying that. Right. Like, it will never happen if we keep saying it'll never happen. But something like that, the experience is what you want. And then you have to innovate to the point of solving the problem in an acceptable way in that use case. That's the key. That's where innovation needs to keep And Joe, as hard as that challenge sounds, and even though it sounds feasible, but still difficult to put the pieces together, I love going back to where Amir pointed earlier. How do we make sure that is equally available for site staff and other study yeah. team members that also deserve to have that ridiculously simple, elegant, well-thought user experience and design around being able to just pick up what is needed and get their work done. Um, it's hard to imagine a good participant experience without a good experience for site staff. Um, and you know, so much attention today going into improving experience for one. How can we make that out of the box experience work for, for site staff? By the way, I'm on this kick right now, Joe, that I don't talk about sites. I talk about site staff. Sites are buildings. So mm. the experience of a building I'm less concerned with, but uh, the people within it, I'll, I want to make sure we're doing right. I love that. Yeah, it's like, it's like where there was the whole initiative, it was a Kelly, it's like, don't call me subject. So should we start saying, don't call me site? Well, like you said earlier <laughs> that you were out too. talking to a site the other day and I was picturing you standing outside of a brick wall of a building <laughs> having this fascinating conversation. Maybe you got good feedback. Yeah. Hey, sites are people too, right? Could I? Uh, 
Could I add another um, thought? You know, I think one of the things um, we haven't talked about today in our conversation is incentivizing consumers, you know, to, um, when I think about, I think there was an example a few years ago where somewhere in Eastern Europe, one of the countries, while consumers were standing at a bus stop or a train stop, if they did 10 setups, they were incentivized for a free ticket fare to go from where, what destination they wanted to take using that public transportation. Imagine a world where now we have taken that concept, where we have educated the broader population about what clinical trials are and, and incentivize them in simple incentives like that. Hey, if you, you know, um, participated in this trial or walked from here to the corner store as opposed to driving from here to there, you get incentivized with a free something, you know, free uh, some sort of a thing in return where they would be more willing. So that leads more to my point of preventive health as opposed to treatment health. And this is again in the consumer space uh, area uh, where these variables that we, we use, um, we use those variables to incentivize people to lead a more healthier or participate in a trial or contribute a data to um, a larger, uh, you know, health economic study. You know, so people get hung up on that word incentive, and I just want to like demystify a bit that it doesn't mean handing out cash, right? Gamification and other ways to try to improve, you know, people's motivation to do different behaviors. The analogy you were sharing, Archana, reminded me of that video from a while back. I think uh, it was at a subway station where they had modified the staircase that was next to the escalator so that when you stepped on each step, it played a musical note. And how many people started to switch from taking the escalator up to the stairs to go up and incentivize them, but in a playful and fun and engaging way, not an inducey kind of way. Sorry if I stepped on you, Amir. No problem. You, you um, well, One thing I was gonna say relates to what you're saying really is that, uh, you know, Luckily for tech, they don't have RVs, they don't have compliance groups, they don't have regulatory groups. And I think that's why they can innovate. In terms of staircase in Korea, by the way, most places shows you how many calories you're burning on the step as then as you step more, like up those subways and stuff. It kind of incentivizes you by giving you information of how many calories you're burning by actually going up those set of stairs. Um, and I'd like to point out in the chats, uh, Brad Hightower did point out to you, Craig, that he's literally called Hightower, so as a site, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> uh, thank you, Brad. Yeah, speaking of trust, um, I'm looking through the post on what people have set out there. Um, I thought some time ago there was an attempt to make like a like a Yelp for clinical trials to rate sites, but also to rate sponsors in both ways, like a dual sided marketplace to sort of put that, make people accountable to the, you know, to the public. Um, well, they're, they're, uh, for one thing, I mean, I, I, a lot of sites are rated on Yelp. Um, and you can, you can type in clinical research, you'll find mm. groups like Anaheim clinical trials and others. And when I had reached out to one of the leaders for, for one of those uh, practices, uh, he had noted to me that, that they were encouraging their patients to post reviews on Yelp, that they were drawing a lot of people from different markets. And um, if they had a good experience, they, they wanted to be found, um, just like any other business would want to be found based on positive experience. Um, you know, we've talked in the past here with 
with folks like Irfan Khan at Circuit Clinical about their platform trial journey, which uh, looks a little more like health grades than like Yelp as a consumer experience, not for um, rating, well, for rating your experience, but in a very health grades like concise way mm. with your experience with your provider. Um, but, you know, I'm sure there's, it, it, it's interesting, right? You think about there have been ratings platforms for entrepreneurs to rate their experience with investors. And uh, so kind of flipping the direction of things and, and have, you know, stakeholders rating their experience like that, it kind of reminds me a, a bit, I think, of where even Brad was trying to go with his uh, Clinical Trial Confidential website. Yeah, I mean, like, you want to talk about incentives. I mean, how many, how much money and how much search engine optimization is spent when you get a negative review on something for your business? Like it could kill your pizza shop if you have a negative review, right? So sponsors can't pay sites on time and they get a whole bunch of negative reviews saying, don't work with them because they never pay you on time and you can't pay your own bill. Like, wouldn't that kind of guilt them into, I mean, it's not the only thing that would, but I'm, I'm just trying to say like, you want a consumer experiences that drives change, that kind of thing changes behavior. Um, maybe that would help. So what, uh, what apps, oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead, Amir. So well, the only thing I would say is there is a bit of a nuance there that you, if you've been following, I mean, Yelp has had a lot of issues with fake reviews with, you know, yeah. just a lot of stuff going. And also, I mean, even I don't know if you're yesterday, for the first time ever, FTC actually fined a company for um, juicing their Amazon reviews. It turns out uh, they actually find their subsidiary of Nestle Health Sciences uh, for their vitamin uh, kind of product, where if you look it up, it's quite kind of nuanced what they did, but they really kind of um, had any new product that came out, they kind of juiced it so it looked like it was Amazon Choice and highly rated based on some other products they had. It was quite subtle what was happening, but it was definitely misleading kind of consumers. And it's the first time FTC has actually found someone yesterday. So I think, uh, you know, th there are complications to those consumer systems for sure as well. So Joe, you, you raised this uh, opportunity of, well, what about consumer and experiences that change behaviors and change behaviors for good? You mentioned the Aura Ring. What other consumer experiences or apps do you feel are great examples of changing behavior for good? Well, I think uh, I'm looking at one that actually uh, is up there. A couple of people mentioned it, including you, Craig. Uh, you, we already mentioned Open Table and like trying to find time. So you think about like the reservation of time at a place. If we're trying to provide optionality for patients and how they want to participate, well, some of those options need to have times tied to schedules, tied to locations. So you need to have that kind of a whole place to be able to say, okay, I'm, where do I need to go and when? And how can I schedule that ahead of time? And can I schedule multiple interactions ahead of time today, right, for the next three weeks? type of things like that kind of experience is really giving the power in the patient's hands of optionality by controlling their schedule, especially when they have a daily life, work life. Right. So there's that. Um, a bunch of people, a couple of people mentioned spot hero, like the app that you use to find a parking space. I use it all the time in New York. Um, it, quick tip. Spot hero also has an app for Apple CarPlay. So while you're driving, you can find a spot and reserve it, which is pretty cool. Um, but just like trying to find out 
Like, I think your, your comment, Craig, was uh, to better understand the cost impact of deciding to participate in the trial with transparency before getting there. So the whole point of like, I'm planning before I get there to know what it's going to cost. Did I get a deal? How long is it going to take? All that kind of stuff. It's just uh, maybe that's part of the informed consent. Maybe it's even before the consent. It's before I even want to consent to this. I need to learn more about it. And so how do you consumerize that? Maybe it's part like pre-screening workflows and the recruitment process or, but it could be like an app or some kind of experience that would help you really understand what's going on. You know, I love that um, one. You know, my, 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 uh, the fix that spot hero did for me was living in the New York area. If you park in a New York city garage, you have no idea what you're paying. Uh, uh-huh. until your car is way too committed, right? <laughs> the sign is deep in the garage and good luck trying to back out across a pedestrian traffic <laughs> sidewalk and, and, and get your way out. And the spot one block away is 50 bucks cheaper. And you had no idea right. exactly. Yeah. Uh, half a block away, you know, and so adding that level of transparency and clarity about what you're getting around the commitment you're making and the different options that may be available for you just down the block. And so that that speaks to, I think, two really interesting challenges. One, both the burden and the cost around the, the trial in which I'm participating. Hopefully most of our trials are mitigating out-of-pocket costs for patients, but if they're not, how do we make sure that is abundantly clear up front, as well as any burden that may be uh, consumed? Um, and then understanding up front before you even walk in that door, before you've pulled into that parking garage, to understand what other spots may be available up the block that offer a different experience that may be better for you. Yeah. Good. But Craig, about you and Joe talking about that makes me feel really good. I don't have to park in New York as a oh, it's a it's a game, Amir. Come on, man. You roll up your sleeves. It's like everything in New York, man. It's all a game. So, but the second thing I will tell you, I had a funny experience yesterday, which was I was a guest lecturer at a quite a famous university uh, in that area, and it, these were MBA students, very you know high level universities. So, assuming these are extremely smart students. Uh, doing their MBA. Many of them were actually working in our industry. Uh, there was an MBA with a biotech sort of focus. Um, and bef- you know, before me, the main professor was giving a lecture about a uh, case study about pricing you know, in healthcare. And the main thing that came out of that was two things. One was how little these sophisticated MBA students understood the healthcare system, which was kind of funny. But also that the main lesson really was you know, when there's opaqueness, sometimes it's for good reason on purpose because it makes it allows people like that in your garage to charge more because you don't know, as you said, next door. It's not. So part of healthcare in the U.S. certainly, opaqueness and all that actually helps a lot of people, right, in the in the business. So frankly, the business incentives are con- to continue that opacity as opposed to the transparency that I was mentioning earlier. So that's something to consider too, right? By the way, by the way, I have to interrupt you. Uh, I, I I was getting texts last night because I have people I work with that were in that class last night where you were in. They're like, "Hey, do you know this guy, Amir Kalali? He's really smart." Um, yeah, so nice job. You got rave reviews on your talk there. So Thank nice you. job. But do you agree, Joe, that uh, you know that opacity may be actually on purpose? Like some people may not actually want to get rid of that because it's actually what's making them be able to be highly profitable in a dysfunctional yeah. system. 
Well, I, uh, I just asked ChatGPT what consumer experience should be used to improve clinical trials. So not to say that the last 54 minutes were a waste because we humans tried our best to discuss this, but let's see what the machine has to say. ChatGPT has five things that we can do to, to use consumer experience to improve Only clinical five. trials. Only five. Uh, and honestly, a lot of it leans into the types of things we've been talking about. First and foremost, clear and concise communications with participants in trials. By the way, even ChatGPT doesn't call people subjects, calls them participants. Way to go, ChatGPT. Uh, secondly, convenience and accessibility. Trials should be designed with a participant in mind and making them as convenient and as accessible as possible with flexible scheduling, virtual visits, minimizing travel time. Third, empathy and support. And that's a great one for us to think about. How do we make sure that participants feel supported throughout the trial, not just at the visits, but all of that space in between? Fourth, compensation. Picks up a little bit on making sure we have that transparency like a, like a spot hero kind of app, but making sure we're compensating people for their time and expenses. And then finally, feedback. And this gets to Joe's point about ratings and other ways to share feedback, participants should be given opportunities to provide feedback on their experience in the trial. Any reaction to ChatGPT? Did it get it right? Did it get it wrong? Should we get the uh, get the chatbot on the show next week? I think it's a great summary. And and within all those five points, you can come up with like individual use cases that are like comparing it to consumer apps or, or whatnot that all roll up to some of those five things. I think it's a great summary. Yeah, I think, um, you know, um, Craig, what I think about so chat GPT that we also we've had sessions, well, we have many sessions on it. Um, I think what it's really good at is teaching novices about something or giving you a travel itinerary, although there's some specific AI ones now for that. Um, I'm not, you know, most of the time, I think those who are in the industry and well experienced will find the con the output convenient, like instead of writing out themselves. I don't think it'll, it's certainly not inventing new ideas, right? It's just reporting what it sees on the internet. So I think it's really good at kind of summarizing. And I think for new people to anything, or if for some reason, Craig, you decided to go to the Met Gala because you're over there and what you want to know which designer to wear, I guess it could tell you that if you're not knowledgeable about that uh, but i think in terms of what it tells us about our own industry in general is confirming kind of what we know already that's that's how i look at it right yeah i i would also add that you know if you look at all the points that chat gpt said it also brings about the brings the user experience at the center um, of, of a lot of what's planning. So, you know, we talked about this in such great depth today. In my mind, what I'm walking away with is, I think that has to be the core um, of the solutions, but it has to be, you know, as an industry, what do we need to change? We need to give the optionality. And while technically that is difficult because interoperability becomes a big problem in giving that optionality from an execution perspective, but we there is no other way around it. We have to tackle that and we have to solve for that for to get that consumer experience, to reach that goal. Um, so I think all the technology vendors should be focusing on solving for that so that that engagement, that trust, 
and that experience is at the center of the solutions, whether it be for sites or whether it be for participants. We have to approach it from that perspective. Well, I did go ahead and copy ChatGPT's answer into the comments on Joe's post. Joe's post is pinned here on Clubhouse, and you can also just find it on LinkedIn by looking up Joe Dustin. You should be following Joe if you're not already. Uh, so that's your, that's another opportunity for an additional click once you're on LinkedIn. We do, Jane, have uh, some some co uh, group coming online with us next week to talk about evidence of impact of DTRA. Jane, is there any preview you want to drop a clue, a breadcrumb for folks on what to look forward to next week? Sure. So this is a summary of the output of this team's work and what they found in terms of evidence of impact. And my teaser question for you is maybe think about how we would measure um, return on investment in ways other than simply financial. So what is it about DCTs that create impact, not just the money spent? or saved. I like it, Jane. In fact, I like it so much, I'm giving it my inquisitive, provocative emoji on Clubhouse right now. Um, Amir, any any closing words based on today's conversation before we wrap up today? Uh, I would echo something Joe said uh, earlier, which was uh, what it tells us is a lot of work to do and a lot of opportunity. Absolutely. And with that in mind, Joe, I thank you for raising a great provocative question on LinkedIn and for jumping on with us today for a little bit of fun here on Clubhouse. Archna, always a pleasure. And for everybody contributing to the conversation, Nisha, Brad, Justin, um, Harshad, and others, thanks so much for keeping the chat so fun and interesting running alongside. Join us here next week, wherever you may be. And thanks again for uh, joining today. All the best. Bye-bye, everyone. This is, this is when we have our, like, our post credit scene, right? <laughs> so, Jane, you, I think you were with us uh, when we, we, we found ourselves doing the, uh, the post credit conversation at the end of Clubhouse last time. It's where all the, the it's where all the best conversations happen. I think. I, I feel. Um, yeah, I, I think the best thing to know is that this stuff is possible. You can't just can't say that it's impossible. Or just ask ChatGPT if it's if it's possible or not. <laughs> if you're not sure. Or, or ask Chaos GPT to tell me how how it's all going to end. Because that's 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 what I've been reading. So. So, you know, Joe, the, uh, the DTRA team that's grabbing these recordings and, and formatting them as podcasts said that after credit, are we going to include that? We're cropping that out, right? I, don't, I think so. We probably should. You yeah. think so? Or, or maybe it's going to turn into our, uh, our, our, uh, our cut reel, you know, our, our outtakes. Yeah, maybe it's like the, the real nuggets. <laughs> nuggets of information are here. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm... Uh, it's I'm been a this is a great topic. And you know what? We didn't even get into like like the really racy apps. I thought somebody's going to bring up Grindr or some dating app and look at the power of matching. And why aren't we doing right. more of that in our research? But people kept it clean with, uh, with you know, a little bit of uh, Google Maps. I'm more of a Waze guy myself. Yeah. I, I, I like well, the crowdsourcing. Why. Right. The, 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 Waze, the Waze 
The only reason I use Waze is because it tells me where the cops are. It tells me where to watch out for. I mean, so if any other app had that, you would use the other app. I'm not sure why any other app doesn't have that. Did they put a patent on that or something? I mean, that's, that's Google Maps app. owns Waze, or Google does. You'd think it would just be uh, right there already, but I'm, I'm right there with you, man. That's a, uh, yeah. it's the power of the crowd, you know, power of the crowd in clinical research. It's, uh, it's good stuff, man. Think about how other people could, I mean, when patients are already talking about their experiences on social networks in other places, what if there was a place to control it in a safe space and actually learn from it, right? Like, I know there's social listening platforms out there, but, you know, the swipe left, swipe right idea, where the cops are, where are the pitfalls, where are the problems, like, all that kind of stuff could be rolled into one thing that not only helps patients on one side with their experience, but also gives tons of insight to the people designing the study in the first place. There's just See, no one Elon Musk that. is going to launch an app called X and Joe's going to launch the app called Y. <laughs> go, right, go right there. I love it. All right, guys. It was great having everybody here. Thanks so much. Enjoy your weekend.